Hello and welcome to another episode of Radcast Outdoors. Today we are sponsored by Rocky Mountain Discount Sports. When you come out west, whether you're hunting, hiking, or fishing, you need to swing in and check out Rocky Mountain Discount Sports. They have everything for the fisherman, the hunter, or the backpacker. The stores are scattered throughout the state. If you haven't seen or heard of this little sporting goods store, they are a gem in Wyoming. This episode is also brought to you by our wonderful High Mountain Seasonings here in Riverton, local company. Um, they do a wonderful job of putting together different um, cure options and seasoning options for your wild game. Whether you're hunting or fishing, it doesn't matter. Um, they have everything that you need, including boards for cutting your jerky just to the perfect perfect width so that you can make that whole muscle meat jerky and also they have jerky shooters if you're like me and you like to grind it up so make sure to check them out you can get 10 percent off uh, by going to their website and ordering online and all you have to do is enter the code hms10 at checkout again that's hms10 we'd also like to uh, bring to you one of our other sponsors for this episode which is bowspider bowspider.com is a universal bow packing system it works seamlessly with any backpack and any bow to create the perfect environment for you to carry and transport your bow, whether that be store it at home, carry it in the vehicle, or when you're out in the field. Go check them out at bowspider.com. We'd like to showcase another sponsor of Radcast Outdoors this week is Maven Built. Maven Built is a Lander, Wyoming company. And they offer a wide variety and range of optics from their b1 and b2 and b5 binoculars to their spotting scopes and their rifle scopes i personally have a set of the b2 binoculars they're 11 power and they are rival any other glass that's on the market so whether you're going to be doing some spot and stock hunting you're going to be doing some birding or you just want a new pair of binoculars to run around with and check stuff out i would definitely get on and look at their binocular line as well as if you're getting into birding or need a spotting scope Maven has some spotting scope options as well on their website. It's mavenbuilt.com. Uh, finally, they just came out and launched a rifle scope line. They have a pretty good array of glass and different powers and options for you. So you should get on there and check out these Maven Built Optics. Again, they're a Lander, Wyoming company. I have a pair of their binoculars that I've used for two seasons now, and they are my go-to. Fish on! Hey, Radcast is on! Hunting, fishing, and everything in between. This is Radcast Outdoors. From the Porter's 10Cast Studio, here are David Merrill and Patrick Edwards. Welcome to another episode of Radcast Outdoors. Today, um, we're joined by Mr. Jim Zumbo. So, Jim, thanks for coming down from Cody to join us in the studio. Uh, I've got myself, Patrick Edwards, and David Merrill, my co-host. So I'm back again. They can't get rid of me. <laughs> well, it's a pleasure to be here. Luckily, the roads were great. I saw maybe four cars from Cody to here, so <laughs> which is typical. That's yeah. a really difficult state to live in when yeah, we have yeah. that kind of traffic, right? Yeah, yeah, it really, really makes me mad. But <laughs> And you, you got to drive by one of the prettiest places in Wyoming, that Wind River Canyon. Absolutely, so yep. That always makes for a good morning. Yep, so. sure does. Uh, we're super grateful, again, that you made the journey down and we can kind of visit with you about all things outdoors. And so where I kind of wanted to start was, you know, how, how did you get your kind of beginnings in the outdoor world and how did you begin that journey? 
Well, basically, um, I was born and raised in a, uh, a city in upstate New York. And uh, actually, I was from an inner city area, but my dad was a scoutmaster. And uh, so I went on a lot of hikes and camping trips, but I always loved living things. I would watch ants and feed ants and spiders and stuff around the house. And I knew that someday I wanted to be associated in some sort of an outdoor career. But uh, as time went on, I got two degrees in forestry and wildlife. Uh, one at a small college in northern New York State and the other in uh, Utah State University. But when I was in high school, I wasn't much of a student because I was always trying to find a way to get out and go fishing and skip a class. And in fact, we used to trap behind the high school and we had our trap lines. And instead of chasing girls with our hot rods, we'd go out there and check on our, our uh, raccoon traps and stuff. So, um, But I always... One of the courses I took that I, that I liked was English for some reason. I liked to read when I was a kid. I read, I took out these books on animals and all sorts of things, but I liked to read. And one day I wrote a composition for my English teacher. Her name was Miss Fink. And she, she uh, looked at the paper and she wrote on the top, you ought to be a writer. And I thought, wow, are you kidding me? And I had no idea. It just didn't make any sense to me at all. But anyway, the way I actually got into it, I was at this little forestry school in northern New York called Paul Smith College, and it was a big buck that was very elusive in the swamps up there. Now, this is really, you think of New York and you think of the city, but far north up near Canada is really wild. There's very few roads, and people have been lost and died in the wilderness. But there was this big buck called, they called him Old Joe, and uh, all the locals. And one day I was... I was out there with my 3030 Model 94 carbine, and uh, I was crawling through some logs, and this big buck jumped out. And I thought, holy smokes, that might be old Joe. I couldn't get a shot at him. But I wrote about him in the little college newspaper. Um, I wrote a story, and they accepted it. And when I saw that story by Jim Zumbo, I thought, holy smokes, is that amazing? Well, I couldn't put that thing down. I kept looking at my byline. I really wrote a story, so... Uh, transitioning from that, I went to Utah State, and um, again, I'll shorten this, but I met some guys who were involved with the newspaper at the university, which was a bigger paper, and it was a weekly, and uh, they asked me to write an outdoor column, which I did, and uh, it was kind of fun. It was called, uh, I think it was just called Outdoors by Jim Zumbo, and I write about stuff around campus, and uh, uh, one time, I went to a, a Paul Bunyan party, a bunch of foresters. Uh, there were about 40, 50 guys and our professors. And we were in a cabin up Logan Canyon. And, of course, there was a little bit of uh, adult beverage involved. And we were all feeling pretty good. And the professor walks over to me. He says, Zumbo, he says, you think you're a big shot. You write that stupid column in that university paper. He says, why don't you try to write an article for a real magazine? And uh, he said, I'll tell you what, he said, I'll bet you a case of Lucky Lager beer you can't sell a story to a magazine. I said, you're up, John, you're on. So I took him up on it, and uh, on the Utah-Idaho border, there's a lake called Bear Lake. It's a big, big lake. It's They say it's a remnant of the Bonneville Ocean, but it's got some endemic species called the Bonneville Cisco, and these are like seven, eight inches long, and they spawn in January uh, next to the shore. They live in the deep water year-round. And you catch them with nets. 
well, this is a gala affair. It's like a carnival. There are people there, the Lions Club, selling hot dogs and coffee, and people are burning tires, and it's 30 below zero. But there's <laughs> three or 400 people there. So I decided to write about that for Outdoor Life, and I did. And the editor bought the story. And uh, But there was one little interesting thing. I wrote a query to the editor, and I hadn't heard for two or three months. And I thought, oh, well, you know, Outdoor Life, that's way beyond me, and I had given up. Then I got a response Instead of sending the query to the New York office, I sent it to Boulder, Colorado, which was a circulation office. And they finally sent that to him in New York. So it took all that time for him to get the letter. So at any rate, told the story, and I got my case of Lucky Lugger beer. <laughs> so <laughs> that's, like the very, that's the very beginning. <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty cool. So I got to ask, Jim, you know, as a, as a young boy, I did a lot of trapping. And then I got into, you know, reading the Outdoor Life articles and kind of grew up on some of your stories. But, you know, as a young man like, like me, when you were out either fishing or trapping, what what was some of your favorite activities, you know, before you had your own vehicle and was at college? What, what were you doing? Oh, basically, me and my buddy were trapping muskrats. We'd ride our bicycles in the dark before class, and, and uh, he lived closer to where we trapped than I did. So I'd have to ride about two miles uh in the dark on my bike and did a lot of trapping and we did a lot of small game hunting as well there weren't a lot of deer around in those days now we're talking we're going back to golly in the 50s that's a long time ago (laughs) (laughs) but uh we go squirrel hunting and and rabbit hunting and my buddy i used to work for a uh, auto parts department when i was like 14 or 15 after school and my buddy had a car. He was a year older than I did. He'd pick me up. I'd be standing on the sidewalk, and he'd have the shotguns in his car, and I'd, he'd come to a screaming halt. I'd jump in his car, and we'd drive about two miles up the road, and we had like 20, 20 minutes to hunt before daylight was over. So we'd jump out of the car and run out and look for a squirrel or rabbit, and we did it almost every day just to see if we can find something in that short half-hour span. So that, that reminds me of, uh, I got in trouble in high school. We'd go duck hunting when I had my own vehicle before class every day, right? And I, I uh, unfortunately lived in a, a post-school shooting world, right? So mm-hmm. I would go home and take the shotgun out of the case, put it back in the in mm-hmm. the house, lock it up. and But I'd leave the case in my waiters and the decoys right in the, in the Suburban because what was I going to do tomorrow morning? Grab the shotgun, put it in and go. And then I didn't have to haul the gear back and sure. forth every day. I can remember one day the... Dean knocking on the classroom door and pulling me out and there's why is there a gun case in the back of your car? I'm like, well, I'm going duck hunting every day, you know, and it, it's it's sad that society's gone that way because no, I've heard sure. from you yep. know everybody. It used to be you had the rifle and the shotgun in the rack in the back of the truck. Yep. yep. I I was very I have very fond memories of early mornings before school chasing chasing critters. Yeah, I think well, most of us that are avid hunters and fishermen, I, we have kind of similar backgrounds that way. You know, when we were kids, we just couldn't get enough of it. So, mm-hmm. yeah, one of my best friends growing up, we, you know, you talked about the bug fascination. Mm-hmm. My friend Seth and I, we would catch everything. And his family had a little pond in their backyard and the pond had turtles and it had sunfish and stuff like that. So we would catch grasshoppers, crickets, anything we could find under rocks, which sometimes was interesting. Um, and then we would feed it, you know, to those different animals. And it was just fascinating yeah. just to sit there and watch yeah. and watch how the animals react to those yeah. different things. And, you you know, 
like praying mantises. We used to catch those, and here in Wyoming, they're not very big, but yeah. you catch those, and then you feed them random things and, and just see I what they do. I had praying mantises as well. I had them. I made yeah. a little cage out of a screen, and I'd stick a grasshopper in there. I'd watch him come over and grab him. You know, it's just oh, yeah. too much fun. It's so cool. But, yeah, yeah. But I think those are the kind of things that get us started, and exactly kind of get us into that. Yeah, you know, whole whole thing. And I, you, I want to kind of go back to this, but you kind of talked about how. You know, you had that big break with that article with Outdoor Life. That was kind of like your first big mm-hmm. moment. Um, I'm curious, how did you venture out to the West? I mean, what was the, uh, I mean, you you, were, you grew up in New York, but what really brought you out West? Well, I always want to be a cowboy. And back in those days, there were three channels on TV, ABC, NBC, and CBS. Okay, they were all black and white, no color in those days yet. And uh, I used to watch all the Westerns. I'd watch Roy Rogers and Gene Autry and, and the Lone Ranger, and I always thought, why wasn't I born on a ranch in the West? So when I got my associate degree at Paul Smith College, that's a little forestry school in northern New York, that was an associate degree. Um, I decided I probably ought to get my bachelor's because I want to be a game warden or a forest ranger. And I looked around different schools, Syracuse in New York, and good school, and there was a couple in uh, New England, but I really wanted to go West. So I had a buddy who had gone to Utah State. And he says, you need to come out here. It's a great forestry school. Tuition's not bad. So, uh, well, Utah's in the Rockies, right? So no no, no argument there. So I jumped on. A, I got accepted. I jumped on a Continental Trailways bus, and I rode on that thing for 88 hours from New York to Logan, Utah, on, on old Highway 30. And you know where it is because you're from Cheyenne. Yep. That's before yep. the interstates were built. <laughs> yeah. And that bus would stop at every little town in Nebraska and Iowa. And, and uh, anyway, I got to Utah and holy smokes, here I am. And uh, I decided that, you know, this is where. When I was riding on that bus, uh, of course, driving through Iowa and Nebraska and uh, Ohio, there are just a million miles of corn everywhere. It was breaking morning, and I looked out those tinted windows, and I saw these buttes and sagebrush. I thought, holy smokes, where am I now? And I saw antelope. I thought, oh, my God, they're antelope. Holy, all I heard about antelope was what I'd seen in magazines. And I knew at that moment that I was going to live in Wyoming. And uh, it took a little while to get here, but... Um, made it <laughs> yeah and you talk about the the antelope are plentiful oh boy and man they're good to eat as we like to say in a good year there's more antelope than people in wyoming so absolutely yeah absolutely yeah so another question i have for you because i mean david and i grew up reading your stories um we would wait for outdoor life to show up at our houses <laughs> we've talked about this before are you serious Just, oh i'm very okay. serious here. Um, I waited for two magazines growing up, Outdoor Life and In Fisherman, and he was mm-hmm. Field and Stream and Outdoor yeah. Life. Mm. So we've been reading articles on outdoor stuff our entire lives. And me growing up in Cheyenne, there wasn't anything around. You know, I mean, it was pretty poor as far as outdoor activities go. Mm-hmm. So I would always kind of live vicariously through other people because. Mm-hmm. You know, I'd read about bears, you know. I, I always love the bear stories because the covers for for some of your stories are really, you know, kind of freaky. It's probably why I have a complex about bears now. But um, <laughs> you see this picture of this snarling bear coming down on this hunter with his rifle. He's like, ah, you know. Well, you know, there was a reason for that because New York editors love bear stories because their readers love bear stories. Oh, yeah. 
Absolutely. And they would call me and they'd say, Zumbo, go out and get us a grizzly attack story. That's one of the reasons I moved to Cody. I, one of the many reasons, but because we were right in the middle of all the grizzly bear attacks in, in the state. Mm-hmm. You know. But anyway, I didn't mean to interrupt you. But. No, it's good. <laughs> so we would get these stories and I, I, would, I would go straight to your article and I would read it. And so it's just kind of cool, you know, looking back and now having you here in studio because it's like, man, that was something that was pretty influential in my life. Um, and so how did you get into, you know, doing a regular piece for outdoor life? I'm sure there was some kind of a event or something that led to that. Cause you did the one for the, for the case of beer, but mm-hmm. beyond that, how did you get on board full time? Well, after I wrote that first article about Bonneville Cisco's, I, uh, I thought, man, I made it. I'm going to be a writer, you know, and then my next four or five queries to Bill Ray, who was the editor in New York failed. He didn't like any of the ideas. So uh, of course I was despondent, but I went on to be a forester. I worked for the state of Utah for two years and then had an opportunity to go back east to West Point uh, military academy which has 14,000 acres of fabulous uh, woodlands and lakes and ponds so I went back there as a post forester and game warden and biologist and and spent eight years in the woods and while I was there I did a lot of freelance writing and uh, I was able to finagle away to New York City to the outdoor life office one time I had written a story about a tip-up for ice fishing uh, my buddy had put two batteries on it with a with a, a light bulb. So when the flag went up, the light would go on. So we were able to fish for walleyes at night by watching for that light. At, so we'd sit around a fire on shore and drink a little stuff, stuff coffee, of course, and uh, see a light go on, and we'd race out to the tip-up, and we'd catch a walleye usually, sometimes. But anyway, I wrote that for Outdoor Life, and they liked the idea. I call it the Fisher Lighten. And the editor wrote back, because I sent him a little schematic of what the battery was, how it was hooked up to the, he says, we don't quite understand this. Could you send one down, uh, a tip-up, so we can send it, give it to our art department? And I think, well, you know, maybe this could be my entree to meet these people. So I wrote back to the editor, I'm going to be in New York City. Maybe I'll just drop it by, which was a lie, you know. (laughs) (laughs) He said, yeah, come on down, we'll have lunch. And you meet Bill Ray. And I said, oh, boy, I'm going to have lunch with Bill Ray. Holy smoke. So I went down there and took a – now, I lived – West Point's like 50 miles from New York City where Outdoor Life and Field and Stream and Sports of Field were located. So I jumped on a bus and, and uh, went down, got on the subway, took a cab, got to the building. I looked at the, up this great big massive building, got on an elevator, went to the seventh floor, and I walked in this lobby. It's all granite walls, you know, beautiful. And I was totally intimidated. I was so nervous I couldn't even. So I walk in there. There's a big lady sitting there at a reception desk. She said, may I help you? And I says, yes, ma'am. I'm here to see Vin Sperano. She says, hold on a second. So this guy comes out, Vin, who ended up being one of my very dearest friends. He said, come on in. So I went in the building. I'm carrying my tip up in a brown paper bag and, uh, so I was thinking, oh, I'm going to get to meet Bill Ray. Bill Ray was like, the guys in my era, he was like the Pope. I mean, this guy was, he'd make you or break you because he was the one that determined all the content in outdoor life. So I was in Vin's office, and this guy walks by. He sticks his head in the door. He says, hey, how you doing? I'm doing good. And he walks on by. I said, who was that? He said, Bill Ray. I said, oh, um, he says, yeah, he said, uh, Bill can't make it to lunch today, so you're going to go with one of our other editors. And, now, of course, I was just crestfallen because I wanted <laughs> to really meet this guy. But anyway, it worked out well. So I, I met those guys, and um, 
as it turned out, I started selling more stories. One of them was called Beacon in the Forest. That was my third story. It was about the fact that hickory trees turn yellow before the oak trees and everything else in the woods. So if you're out hunting squirrels in early fall, you spot a yellow tree, it's usually a hickory, and that's where the squirrels are. So if you kind of watch that tree, so it was called Beacon in the Forest. They bought that one. And so that I kind of got um, in and was able to sell a few stories until I had then gone back to Utah working as a wildlife biologist in Vernal. And I was actually at that point doing a lot more freelancing. And and I was uh, having sort of accepted with Field and Stream, Sports of Field, and some other magazines. But Outdoor Life was kind of where I put all my emphasis. And I got a phone call one day from Don Causey, who was the associate editor. And he said, hey, he says, we need a Western editor for the magazine. I don't know if you remember, but back in those days, they had the yellow pages. And uh, it was a kind of a filler. Outdoor Life had five regions. Like it was, it was the east and the north and the south and the west. The yellow pages were dedicated to that region. So if you lived in Michigan, you'd read the Midwest region. If you lived in New York, you'd read the Northeast. So they had an editor for each of those regions. And um, he says, how would you like to be Western editor? And here I had a job with a BLM. I all counting West Point, I had probably 14 years with the feds, you know, I had, you know, it was health insurance and pension and all that stuff. And so I said, does that require full time? He said, yeah, you'd have about 30 writers working for you in all the Western states. And I said, oh, I said, you know, like, that means I got to quit my job. He says, well, yeah. I said, uh, let me talk to my wife. So I went home. I couldn't even, I was like driving on air. I, I couldn't believe it. So I told her, she says, if you don't take that job, you regret that the rest of your life. So took the job and ended up as Western editor. And I did that for three or four years. Then they made me, they did away with the yellow pages. So they made me editor at large, which allowed me to write whatever I wanted, fishing stories, hunting stories, travel around and and then at one point, uh, I think it was 1990, they made me hunting editor, which was my all-time objective because I wanted to sort of step in Jack O'Connor's shoes, which I ultimately did after Jim Carmichael, who was who took Jack O'Connor's job. So that's kind of how the whole the whole process developed. I had the three titles: Western editor, editor at large, and then hunting editor. That's awesome. So, so you know, I'm primarily a wilderness backcountry elk hunter Mm -hmm. but i've got two young boys and you know they that's a very difficult trip to take either one of them on i've done a couple horseback trips with them and some day rides but fishing is what where i really how old are they oh they're seven years and seven months oh my (laughs) (laughs) got a little bit of a spread there but uh no the the seven-year-old is taken to fishing and i i mean i want to talk about just kids and fishing and in wyoming for me, like I said, trying to take the seven-year-old on a week-long right. elk hunt is, right. it's, he's gone on some day rides, some all days, and he does okay, but we can go fishing, especially ice fishing, which, I mean, this season, yeah. you know, and set up a, set up a blind or set up a, an ice fishing shack and drill some holes, and, mm-hmm. you know, as you raised your kids, and, I mean, how did you, because I really want to trans, right. transport this sport to my kids. Right. This lifestyle. Well, I've got four kids, uh, three girls and a boy, and the girls are all school teachers. In fact, one's in Cheyenne, 
And uh, I took them fishing early, early, like they were two, three years old. And I'd throw them on a sled and, and drag them out on the ice and, and cut a hole. First of all, you want to make sure they're comfortable when they're little kids. You know, they don't want to be cold or the, if the mosquitoes are biting, they're not going to like that. Number two, you want to try to make sure they have some action because kids get bored in minutes unless they get a bite and catch a fish. So, uh, Maybe My, a snowball fight on the ice. Sure, yeah, whatever. <laughs> cook, and we'd cook hot dogs on the ice. I'd bring wood out in a mm-hmm. bucket, you know, build a fire and marshmallows and get them to really enjoy it. But I think starting at a young age is really important, especially nowadays. When I was a kid, it was, hell, there were no cell phones. It was, you know, there was nothing, you know, there was no social media. Um, we had the outdoors, and, and uh, or you could go in and watch black and white TV, three, three channels, but nowadays, I think you need to, to uh, get the kids outdoors, whether fishing or hunting, take them with you as early as you can and uh, get them exposed because if you wait too long, I think that they're going to be involved in other projects, you know, and, and lose interest. But um, I firmly believe in taking them out as, as, as young as you possibly can. Yeah. yeah. And it, <clears throat> I know here in Wyoming, we have some fisheries that are really good for that. When I was a kid... Here at, we call it Bass Lake or Lake Kamiyawede, I believe is how it's actually said. But perch, bluegill, Mm -hmm. those kind of fish, if if you can get on on that. Or, you know, my dad was real good about, hey, let's go up into the snowies, you know, so Mm -hmm. we'd have to drive from Cheyenne and go up to the snowies. But go up to the snowies, find a nice little stream with brook trout, cutthroat trout. I mean, you can can have a ball doing that. And it's really good to eat, too. Yeah. And there's a lot of lakes in Wyoming with, like I say, yellow perch and um, and bluegills. And we have a lake around Cody that's full of crappies, but uh, brook trout are everywhere. My little girl, my youngest girl, one time when we went fishing, and the limit on yellow perch in Wyoming is 50. And I said, I'll give you a quarter for every yellow perch you catch. She filled that stringer up. She <laughs> and I said, I'll give you a buck for every trout you catch. So she caught like 45 yellow perch, and, and, uh, and she helped me clean them. Um, she was like maybe 12 or 13. Of course, you want to be careful with a knife, but, uh, but just getting them involved and, and getting them to realize that, hey, these fish taste good, so they want to go out and catch more. So I think that's important as well. Yeah, my oldest daughter, <clears throat> I was getting her introduced to fishing when we moved up here to Riverton, so this was about five years ago, so she was around six, somewhere in there. Um, I took her down below Boyson Dam, we were mm-hmm. fishing at night, mm-hmm. and I had had her practicing her casting, so she was doing pretty well. And I put, I, I had this tackle box for her, and she decided she wanted to pick the pretty lure, which was a, it was kind of like a little flatfish looking thing, you know. And mm-hmm. so she put that on, and I was like, I don't know if she's gonna catch a walleye on this, but heck, go for it, kid, do what you want to do. And I wouldn't be- have believed it until she did it, but she hooked a mid twenty inch. Wow. Walleye. Oh, my God. <laughs> so she's <laughs> screaming at me at the top of her lungs, Dad, 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 help, help, help. This thing's pulling, you know, and water's going ballistic. Well, it came off, but then she was really excited. She was like, man, that was cool, and she's shaking, you know, and the whole thing is shaking. And and then the next year I took her, and she was a little bit bigger, a little bit stronger. I, I got her this purple Rapala um, as like a suspending lure, 
And she she cast that thing out, and she was catching walleye on her own. And that wow. was one of the coolest things. I mean, fall fishing can be rough on kids just because of the cold and whatnot, but she, she did it like a champ, and she was just so excited to get that bite in the dark because, you know, you can't mm-hmm. see, and it adds that extra element. That's so good it was for you. pretty fun. That's good. That, that's uh Gonna have you're gonna have fishing companions, you know, forever. Is you get your kids involved. That's I took my, my little girl at one time in a boat. We have a, we have a. In back east, they call them camps. They're really cabins, you know, or cottages. But uh, we had a camp in the Adirondacks, and still do, in a lakefront property. And we had a little boat, and I took my daughter out, and she hooked a four pound smallmouth bass, and she was like eight. Oof. And that fish just, uh, she didn't have any idea. She could hold it on with both hands. At one point, she started to cry because she didn't know what was going on. I said, no, no, you can land that fish. Just, you know, <laughs> let him run. You know, and I was unloosening the bail, you know, taking line. And finally, she landed it. We still oh, talk man. about that. That's awesome. Four pounds, small mouth, so. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, my other daughter, Katie, is another kind of similar story. <laughs> I took her out. It was her birthday's in May. And there's a spot on Boyson where the trout are pretty active in, in May and you can cast out with spoons and catch them and whatnot. So mm-hmm. she casts out, she hooks this fish and it was about a 22 inch rainbow, but it, it was really getting after it. And her drag was too tight. It almost pulled her into the lake. Oh my gosh. I was like holding onto her back. Like, Oh, you can do this. You can do this. And she's just like, who are you on shore or in a boat on shore? Oh, really? And it was on this. Hold on. Let me get those GPS. Yeah. Right yeah. <laughs> It was kind of like, yeah, it was kind of like on a little cliff spot. So I was like, man, you don't want her falling in because it oh, goes yeah. from, you know, zero to like 20, 30 feet deep right, right. there. But boy, right. she she was excited. But I think you bring up a good point because if they don't catch something within the first, I don't know, 15 minutes, mm-hmm. they start to get bored. And, mm-hmm. and I know David and I both have talked about this. You got to find something for them to do, whether it's catching crawfish, you know, under rocks by the bank or or whatever, but find something. So I took my boy to the Kenai two years ago. You know, Grandpa lives up there, so we try and go visit as much as we can. But he, he can't really floss for sockeyes. He's not big enough yet. He was five mm-hmm. at the time. But there's rainbow trout are just eating, you know, skeins of eggs. So mm-hmm. we, we set him up with a trout rod with a little bit of eggs, and, I mean, he, he had more fun with those trout just pecking oh, away yeah. at those eggs. And, you know, eventually he got bored with that. And so we started throwing rocks around the bank and doing other mm-hmm. things. Sure. But I, I really want to, you know, just perpetuate this sport and see it grow, whether it's trapping, hunting, mm-hmm. fishing, mm-hmm. even wildlife photography, right? Just, you know, get them Absolutely. off the phone, get yeah. them off the TV and yeah. go out there and, and create something. Yep. And the best place to take them is where there's no cell service. Mm-hmm. So they can't use your phones. Yeah. <laughs> I, I say that kind of jokingly, <laughs> but it's almost true. It's the truth. My brother, I can remember in high school, if he could have had a cell phone that could have gotten reception back mm-hmm. then, he would have. Because yeah. we would go and he just wasn't into it as much. But right. what you would see is after a little bit of time, he would start to get more engaged with what we were doing. But yeah. he just wasn't into that thing. But it, it was just different. Mm-hmm. And nowadays... I mean, they're talking about trying to put in cell service for the national parks and different things. I'm like, man, I wish they wouldn't. Because part of the enjoyment for me is to get away from my sure. cell phone. Absolutely. Especially with work and all this other stuff. For yeah. me, on a, on a trip, you know, I like to do the 7 or 10-day backcountry wall tent elk hunt. That's just... Sure. But, you know, the first day or two, you have this 
you know, unplugging of society and this, mm-hmm. you know, digital clock that we follow. It's no, now you're starting to follow the sun and, oh, well, we got to cook dinner before bed. And it takes me a day or two to get into that routine and, and the kind of the cell phone digital clock fall away. Right. But the trip for me is over. If I'm laying there on my cot thinking about whatever day, it might be day seven or day nine or what day five. But if I start thinking about what I have to do when I get home, it's time to, yeah. but there's, there's a period of time from day two to day five or seven where you just every day kind of melts into the next and you just, yep. y- you get to reconnect with yourself. That's for sure. I'll tell you a little story about, I took my two grandsons out with my son, Dan. We went out down to Pelican Lake in Utah and uh, they were going to poison the lake two years ago. So they lifted the limits on bluegills. So you could take 500 of them home. They wanted you to catch as many as possible because they're all going to die anyway. So we're out in a boat with my son. He's got a bass boat and my two grandsons, his kids. And the little guy, Dominic, he kind of got bored. And uh, his big brother was catching some fish. And I had a counter, a fish counter, a clicker. I said, Dom, why don't you take that thing and you you just kind of click every time we catch a fish and then record it to who catches what. Okay, Grandpa, sounds like a good idea. Well, he started clicking away and clicking away and he realizes, hey, I want to catch some fish too. So that counter <laughs> kind of, you know, it, it, it got him involved to where he wasn't so bored because he was having a tough time catching fish. But So what's your favorite fish recipe? What's your favorite fish to catch and what's your favorite way to prepare it? Oh, uh, golly. Probably my all-time favorite fish is a bluegill. As it was probably the first fish I caught. My dad took me literally fishing when I was in diapers. And I uh, was probably a year or two years old. And bluegill was the first fish I caught. That He told me. I don't remember that. But um, I love it all. I, I think I've caught, not to brag, but it is what it is. I think I've caught every fish in the country except the muskie. I had one hooked under the ice once in western New York. but uh, And I guess as far as just um, enjoying the whole scenario brook trout would be a favorite as well i like sneaking around the mountains you know and walking through the woods with an old fly rod and and uh i don't do any finesse and i just got a little piece of worm on a hook and i just drop in a hole and love to cook them alongside the shore but bluegills are probably my all-time favorite and a long time ago i learned how to fillet them which most people do now back in the old days you just you just scaled them and you just threw them you know gutted them took the fins off and threw them in a frying pan but I don't think there's anything better, but I like it all. I love crappies. I love yellow perch, catfish, all. In fact, I, I kind of have challenged myself. I have tried eating fish that other people would not even think about it. Uh, for example, there's a fish in the Columbia River. Uh, I think it's called the long-tailed minnow. Now, it was it, uh, there's zillions of them. In fact, there's a bounty on them because they eat the salmon smolt, and they they supposedly have uh, floating bones. Well, I brought some home and I pickled them, which makes the bones go away. They were fantastic. Uh, another time I was fishing off the coast of Florida with a buddy of mine. We were catching these big, long silver fish called ladyfish. And he'd release them. And I said, I said, Mark, why releasing those fish? He says, they're no good to eat. They're terrible. I says, why? Is they got all these bones in them. I said, can I take some home? He says, not on my boat. He said, I don't want anybody <laughs> to see them. I said, suppose I smuggle some out of here. He's okay, but don't let any of my buddies see those ladyfish that you're taking on shore. I took them home and did stuff with them. But, uh, in fact, I often will target carp up in Yellowtail, up uh, at mm-hmm. a level, and bring a bunch home, either shoot them with a bow and arrow or catch them and, and uh, pickle those or can them. I do a lot of canning. And in fact, I got a little trick. I catch a lot of suckers as well, and I can those. 
uh, or I pickle them. But when you when you can sucker meat, sucker meat is white. Well, basically in a pint jar you put in a teaspoon of salt and you can it. And but I also add a tablespoon of French dressing, which is orange. When the fish are done, they come out pink, and I tell people they're salmon, and they believe it and they love it. <laughs> they have no idea they're eating suckers. <laughs> well, and suckers they they have, and you. I've read articles on them. Uh, Doug Stangy, who you probably know from oh, yeah. Fisherman Heat, yeah. he talks about red horse suckers oh, and different yeah. things and, and canning them and smoking right. them and doing all stuff. So this last year, might it might be two years ago now, I was like, man, I'm going to try this. And it, I didn't do the typical go and smoke it and do kind of how they said. I said, I want to see if I can find a piece of meat in here, cook it up with some walleye and see if anybody can tell the difference. Mm-hmm. And I was amazed because I, I took, I kept those to the side, yeah. <clears throat> and then I fried them up and had people try them. I'm like, hey, how's, how's this batch taste? And they're like, oh man, this is really good. You know, it, it's the bones that I think right. a lot of people in the course exactly. of the fish aren't exactly uh, yeah. handsome fish. Yeah. Um, so, but I mean, there are a lot of really good fish out there that you can make into good food. Absolutely. One of my favorites also is a northern pike, <laughs> and. Um, I guess there's some at Keyhole Reservoir. I know there are in Wyoming. I don't know any other places where there's northerns, but I've caught a lot of northerns in back east in Montana, Fort Peck, Canada, many, many, many trips. But northerns are notorious for having Y-bones, and I never knew how to get those pesky things out, and I would always fight them when I the, the meat is delicious. So one time I was hunting bears up in uh, Manitoba with an old outfitter. I got to know him pretty well, and... We were hunting bears over baits, so we'd go out about 3 in the afternoon to sit on our stands, but in the morning we had all all day to mess around, so we'd go fishing for northerns off the dock by the lodge, and he showed me how to get those Y-bones out, and I thought, holy smokes, and I'll tell you, that meat is fabulous, but uh, it's just so easy. You can go to YouTube and find 10 different ways to get the Y-bones out of a northern pike. Yeah, and northern pike is one of the best table fare, in oh, my opinion, of any of the fish. Fantastic. Really firm and yep. delicious meat. Yep. So what's your favorite recipe? Like, let's let's just say brook trout. You know, what's your favorite way to prepare a brookie? Well, first of all, I, I love them streamside. You know, I fish up in the bighorns a lot or the bear tooths, and I'll usually take my fish over to a picnic area or a campground where there's a grate and everything, or else build a fire if, if there's no fire danger alongside the shore and just uh, I take a skillet with me with some butter and some different garlic salt, onion salt and stuff, and, and uh, just cook them in the butter, flip them around, and wait till they're nice and golden brown. The tails are crisp. The tails are good to eat as well. Oh, yeah. But, uh, Sometimes, instead of a skillet, I'll just take some foil with some onions and just put them in the foil and put a bunch of butter over around them and put some sliced onions on them, wrap them up, throw them in the coals. They're fantastic. Really good. What would be your you know, favorite fishing destination? Oh, golly, that's a good question. Um, I don't, Like I said, I love bluegills, so anywhere there's a bluegill, I... I I've done a lot of fishing in the Midwest, in Iowa and Kansas and in different places, and uh, just because I like to bring bluegills home. But I don't know if there's a place I don't like to fish, really. Um, I go to Texas quite a bit. I've got some friends down there go hunting down there and fishing as well. And uh, But 
we've got we still have our family cabin in new york and that lake is full of pumpkin seeds and yellow perch a pumpkin seed is just a bluegill with different you know different coloration and uh that's probably one of my favorites go out in a boat and uh, throw a bobber out with a worm under it and proceed to catch those things so but i like it all really i mean i i like to fish for stuff that nobody else does we we touched on kenai alaska and you've been there many times yeah 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 it's a fun trip that's where that's where david and i want to go here shortly (laughs) well i'll tell you what you you both caught king salmon i'm sure right i have not yet but i will i i have but uh the the video shows the uh, salmon going away so i don't know if that (laughs) that quite counts long time ago i i i uh I met a guy at the Portland Sports Show. I used to do all those shows, and I used to do seminars on elk hunting and stuff. And uh, so I met a lot of the exhibitors. A lot of them had fishing lodges. A lot of them were guides and manufacturers. Jim Teeny is out of Portland, and he made his career with one fly called the Teeny Nymph. And it's very famous. It's copyrighted. He sold millions of them. It's made strictly out of a pheasant tail. And uh, then he started making reels and lines and rods. But early on, Jim, I went to Alaska. My very first trip with Jim. And, uh, of course, all he used was his teeny nymphs because that was what he did. And he got me using them. And we were trying to catch king salmon on a fly rod, which we did. We caught several. Uh, I think my best was maybe 35, 37 pounds. But he was trying to catch the world record on a fly. And I'll tell you what. You hook a king salmon on a fire, you better hold on. And you better have access along that shore where you can run down the shore maybe a half a mile following that fish because he's going to take it right down to the end of your reel. Um, it's it's really incredible. But any way you catch a – well, any salmon, they all fight like crazy. And a couple of years ago, my wife and I went with another couple to the Kenai, and we caught a bunch of silvers, and, and we caught chums, and um, we caught um, – the pink salmon, they call them humpies, I guess, and it's just fabulous. I do a lot of smoking. In fact, I I probably have that smoker going every six weeks with a bunch of trout in it or whatever, and so I smoke a lot of salmon as well. So, Yeah, it's good stuff. I want to circle back to kids a little bit. Um, getting kids into hunting is also a big a big thing for David and I. We want to see – our kids continue in the sport. Our, our fathers got us into it. And um, what would you recommend for people who are um, looking to do, you know, just getting their 10 to 15-year-old kids out there, wh- where should they start? Well, I'd probably start, if you can, with small game, uh, maybe with rabbits. or. Um, but a lot of kids will start them off with deer, maybe antelope, but I I believe that you should take them with you, even if they're too young, if they haven't passed hunter safety even, just take them with you so they can be exposed to that. Because unfortunately, you know, kids, in this world we live in now, there are so many factors, so many anti-hunting, all sorts of things they see on TV and in the movies, and even school teachers are teaching kids how terrible it is to kill animals. And so I think it's important that, you mentor them as early as you possibly can. I did that. I've all my daughters and my son have killed deer and elk um, at a fairly early age. But it's just a matter of taking them out with you and, and showing them different things. Show them 
just different sounds in the woods, what they are, you know, and pointing out different things and just try to get them as involved as possible. So I've got a good friend. Uh, he's a veteran from the uh, Upper Peninsula of Michigan. He's got two little boys, and he take he's taking those kids out when they were in diapers, both of them. And right now they're like uh, nine and six, and they are the huntingest little fools you ever want to see. They just can't wait. I mean, and he they even get involved in helping field dress the animals. So. That's great. Yeah. So I took the uh, seven-year-old and the seven-month-old this last August archery antelope hunting. <laughs> it was, mama had to work, so it was. Now, wait a minute. Wait, the seven-month-old, did you have like a little papoose thing to carry him on or her? Is boy? Him, both yeah, boys. Okay, yeah. we, we have a, a hunter yeah. and a drake. <laughs> okay. So you should see the theme there. <laughs> but uh, we built a blind over a water hole to archery hunt antelope. Right, right. And so I set a cot up in there and I took you know, a cooler full of food and everything. And we, I mean, we harvested an antelope with my bow and the, wow. the older boy was taking video and pictures wow. and really got into it. There you it. go. That's what it takes. And the seven there month old was sleeping, right? And now <laughs> yeah. inevitably right. some got scared away because yeah. we had a kid crying or a kid talking, but you mm-hmm. know what? It wasn't about shooting the largest antelope that's ever walked the earth. It was about taking my two boys and I've got pictures yeah. and memories now. If I can, I can, when they're 30, 40 years old, go, look, I took you in diapers and there we went go. and did this. That's right. Yeah, I, I was fortunate as a young kid to have my dad take me with his best friend who lives up by Newcastle, Wyoming. So there's tons of antelope, mm-hmm. deer, different things up there. And um, <clears throat> we would go out to his ranch and I would ride in the pickup truck. And then my dad and him would get out and go walk draws and do different things. And I would just be ready, you know, listening mm-hmm. for that shot, really excited. And I remember when I finally turned old enough to hunt, I was 12 or whatever at the time. And I killed my first antelope. That was one of the coolest experiences of my life, but I was shaking like you wouldn't believe. But it's just so cool, you know, having that experience and then wanting to get my kids that experience. Because even now on the farm, you know, out at my place, when I butcher pigs, when I butcher chickens, guess what? My kids want to be right there. That's fabulous. And it's cool because people are like, oh, you shouldn't show your kids that. Like, why? Yeah. You know, wh- why yeah. not? Why, what what in society makes us think that we shouldn't show our kids this Absolutely. stuff? It's important for them to understand where their food comes from yeah. and how that process works. And they help me with processing. Yeah. And they're tough kids. You know, it's good. But I, I would go just even further to say, because, you know, my oldest has been around quite a bit of harvesting and, mm-hmm. and part of that. But, you know, I've instilled in him a deep respect and love for all life mm-hmm. right and yeah. the, that's the hunt the anti-hunting side doesn't can't put those two together sure yeah it's Absolutely. it's a love for the animal yeah i've got an interesting story that uh that i often tell as i said i've got three daughters and when i was raised many many decades ago women and girls did not hunt period they just didn't um, so I was kind of raised where just the men and the boys hunted. So my son, Dan is my second child. My oldest is Jeanette and I would take Dan hunting when he was 10, he got a BB gun and he was 12, he got a 22 and he was 14, he got a 16 gauge and we'd go hunting. And I, and I didn't even think that Jeanette wanted to go. She was a year and a half older than he was. So as time went on, she went to college, had a boyfriend. She came home one time, and she was all upset because he was going hunting with his dad and brother and didn't invite her. And I said, wait a minute. You wanted to go hunting? She says, yeah. She said, uh, I says, why didn't you ever ask me? She says, I was just afraid to ask because you always took Dan. 
So I thought, man, what a, that was, I felt terrible. So I said, okay, you want to hunt? Let's go. So I took my thirty six. we went out. She never fired a, a big gun before. Went out in the desert. She shot that out six, three or four times. She liked it. I said, let's go deer hunting. We were living in Utah then in Vernal. Went out in the book cliffs and she shot a buck. It was like a two by three. And she was just absolutely thrilled. And I thought about all the times that she'd go hunting with Dan and I, but she'd sit in the tent and read. She didn't really express any interest. And I had no idea she even had a glimmer of interest. So I wrote a story for Outdoor Life called A Buck for Jeanette. And it just rolled. I mean, I wrote that thing in an hour and a half. It came, you know, right from the heart. And uh, and the editor bought the story. And unbeknown to me, he entered it into uh, several writing contests. Um, and I won, like, five first place with it. Wow. But it wasn't because it was great writing. It was because of the message. And I, we had a ton of letters from readers like, hey, that you know, that, that you know, that's okay. I understand that, and I appreciate it. And, and uh, I've been ignoring my daughter or, or whatever. So that was, to me, it was a real enlightening moment. And then my other daughters, Judy, who lives in Cheyenne, and Angie, I took them rabbit hunting as soon as they were old enough to shoot a 22 and they went on to to hunt as well and so that was a good lesson for me but that that's not so true now because a lot of women are hunting nowadays lots of mm -hmm. in fact the the biggest uh group of hunters nowadays are women there's 11 percent more females hunting now than there were 10 years ago which is great news yeah it is and there's a study an article that came out here and i I misquote it, but the premise of it was if the father hunts in the household, there's a, a, a percentage, you know, less than 50% of the kids go on to hunt into adulthood. But if the father and mother both hunt and are active in a lifestyle, it's over 80% of children into that. adulthood that continue to hunt. And totally fish. believe that. Yep. Yep. There's, okay. there's some young ladies here in town. I have some good friends and they're, they're two daughters. They're both killing antelope and killing deer every year. And I was talking to him over dinner this past weekend and just asking him, you know, how did you, how did you get your daughters into it? And he said, well, I took them, you know, and he said, and I taught them how to shoot. I taught them how to, mm -hmm. you know, field dress, you know, when I would get something down, I would have them come over and, and help mm -hmm. me and, and see what, what it was all about. And so it takes that shock factor away sure. because they're, they're used to it. It's mm -hmm. just part of the culture, part of what you do. And it's just really neat seeing these generations come up. And I think for the longevity of our sports, whether it be hunting or fishing, mm -hmm. we've got to have women out there. We've got to have advocates that, that do this. Absolutely. We had a guest on not too long ago, Jess Johnson. She talked about that coming into it as an adult woman right? and, and hunting and how that's, you know, yeah. her passion now. And I think that that's, that's going to have to be our future in this, in this sport. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's a group called Becoming an Outdoor Woman, Bo, and uh, I think there's chapters, and I know there's chapters in every state, and essentially that's for gals who want to learn about hunting from the very grassroots level, and uh, other gals will help them out, mentor them. That was all started by uh, Dr. Christine Thomas, who lives in Wisconsin. She's a dean of the Natural Resources School there in Stevens Point, and I don't think she's real happy today because Green Bay lost yesterday. So, but uh, she started the whole thing, and it, it's really a terrific program for women. Yeah, it's good. So, changing gears just a little bit, I want to get back to food. What's your okay. favorite wild game recipe, and and how do you prepare it? Oh golly, 
uh, well, I wrote a cookbook 25 years ago called Amazing Venison Recipes. By the way, it's out of print, so there's no more available. Um, but I, I had to say that because if anybody wanted it, I don't have any more. And of all the recipes in that book, one of them that I think is a favorite is called Ginger Elk, although it applies to deer, antelope, whatever. And by the way, when you say venison, venison doesn't necessarily mean deer. It's the flesh of an ungulate if you look in the dictionary. So elk is venison, caribou is venison, moose is venison, just different kind. But this particular recipe involves fresh ginger and soy sauce and onions, and uh, it's a it's a stir fry. You cut your meat into strips, thin strips, and then you add the the ginger is really what does it. You you just mince it so it's fine, fresh ginger, and all of those aromatics, the onions, and also there's garlic in the soy sauce. And the way I got this recipe, son, my son and I got a couple of nasty old mule deer bucks in northwest Utah years ago, and they stunk like hell. It was during the rut, and it was just, man, oh, man, I don't know how we're going to cook these things. So someone there had uh, a recipe. I think it was a Polynesian recipe for really gamey, nasty, tough meat. And we used it, and holy smokes, that deer, anything, I don't care what it is, you get some rank old antelope or a mule deer or whatever and it really will taste good so that's the one that i that i usually will comment on when people ask what my favorite is but uh i don't know i it doesn't matter i make stew and soup and i got a lot of burger recipes and uh back straps my let me pass this on um one time i was deer hunting in arkansas with uh, bunch of folks a bunch of writers and we killed some whitetails and the ladies who cooked in the lodge took the back straps and all they did was they soaked it with olive oil and they spread uh, um, I'm not sure what spice it was it was some kind of seasoning in fact I'm sure high mountain would work in fact I've used high mountain seasoning on on this recipe all you need to do is let it marinate in that seasoning for four or five hours and put it on the grill it's amazing, and the big thing is not to overcook it. I think 142, 143 will leave it uh, kind of uh, medium rare, but some people think that you've got to cook venison until it's creosote, you know, until it's a hockey puck, but absolutely not because that will destroy the, the flavor of the meat. So well, That's good. Anyway. So another person that we often talk about, David and I, just because there's another writer that, just had a big impact on us growing up with the hilarious stories of Patrick McManus and your name comes up a lot in those books. So I was wondering if you could just share with us a little bit about Pat and uh, just what you knew about him, maybe some things people don't know about him and uh, just share a little bit. Yeah. Uh, Pat, in fact, Pat passed away two years ago and the editors asked me to write a tribute to him on the last page of Outdoor Life that he always occupied. So I did that, and they ran my story about what Pat was like. And he and I were were good buddies. We hunted together. We fished together. We did a lot of seminars together, kind of a Smothers Brothers act. I was always the dumb guy, and he was a smart guy. But <laughs> Pat was a very gracious, accessible guy. He had no ego to speak of. He, he liked to talk to people and... Uh, he um, he had the kind of a brain where he could write humor and make you laugh every time. Now, you could write a humorous article and make somebody laugh once, but everything else after that might fall flat. But Pat was so brilliant. 
And the neat thing about it is he could draw housewives and people that never hunted, that didn't even like the outdoors, into his fold just because of the way he wrote funny stories. One time we were hunting antelope over by Medicine Bow, and uh, there were four or five of us right as we were out there camped. And uh, one funny thing he said, he said, Zumbo found a camp spot that was so flat you had to walk over the horizon to go to the bathroom, So, which was true. <laughs> <laughs> But this was also true. There was an antelope out there about 200 yards away. Pat shot at it, and the, and the antelope didn't know where we were. We were in, kind of in some high sage, and it was out on the prairie, and it kept running toward us every time. He missed it three or four times, so he wrote a story called Charged by an Antelope, which was basically true. But um, he loved the outdoors. A lot of people wondered if he really was good at the outdoors or he just was kind of, you know, he was good. Uh, I've seen him cast a fly and i've seen him shoot and uh but he was he was a kind of guy if someone walked up to him at a at a hunting convention and and said uh can i talk to you mr man he says yeah let's go to lunch it's a total stranger that's the way pat was but he had all his crazy rancid crab tree and you know all his characters which were based on real people, <laughs> yeah. which were based on friends of his. And, of course, you know, he would never identify who they were, but uh, he had a real knack. And Outdoor Life always did a survey on readership, um, very expensive. They wanted to know who was the most read, what kind of stories they liked, and so they could plan their editorial format. And Pat was always number one. People always go to the last page and read him. Number two was... Um, that cartoon, This Happened to Me, where somebody get in trouble, do something stupid outdoors, and it was like a cartoon thing. That was number two, but Pat was always first. Yeah, I can attest to that. That was the, the go-to <laughs> was go, go read the last article and then go look for the cartoon of yeah. what not to do next time I'm out in the field, right? <laughs> right, yep. One of the stories that he talked about that was really good and it's in the, in the book, The the Night the Bear Ate Goomba, but yeah. talking about getting hooked, you know, and how you say, we got somebody hooked over here and you get everybody on the lake, you know, just, just things like that to just make your sides hurt. Cause you're yeah. laughing cause you can relate with it. Um, he was a very relatable guy and yeah. how he wrote. And the fact that he took time for people is really cool yeah. to hear. But he could write about stuff like one time he wrote a column about backing up a trailer, a boat trailer and how you can get all messed up and how to <laughs> wire the lights. And my gosh, the whole thing was, you just, split your size laughing <laughs> tying it tying any kind of anything to the top of the hunting yeah. vehicle and yeah. always six being inches six short. inches short <laughs> yeah. but his favorite story was a deer on a bicycle and uh, he and i would do uh, for rmef early on we'd go and do seminars on the stage and he would he would tell this story every time during a bicycle and he he people were rolling in the aisle just laughing and he knew just how to just how to tell that story he might he had all these little one-liners with a punchline. It was hilarious, but uh, he was certainly a master at doing that. Yep. So you've been in Wyoming now for quite a while. 35 um, years. If you were to tell our listeners, you know, these are great places to go and check out in Wyoming for hunting and fishing, uh, what would be your top destinations to have them check out? Right where I live. Right there in Cody? Yeah, Wapiti. I live, uh, Wapiti is almost halfway between Yellowstone and the East Gate, Yellowstone's mm -hmm. Gate, and we've got lots of elk around. We've got antelope, mule deer, and whitetails. 
grizzly bears, which of course you can't hunt, black bears, wolves, cougars, uh, great fishing. We've got trout fishing. We've got some warm water fishing. But uh, I don't know. Cody just always always wanted to live there. And in fact, the reason I moved there, there was a fellow named Gabby Barris. Gabby's long been passed away. Um, but I was living in Vernal, Utah, and I pick up Gabby. We go to Yellowstone and take pictures of elk and sheep. Because there was a point in time when I was also a wildlife photographer, and and I got introduced to Cody, and I thought, boy, I want to live there someday. But not to not to detract from other destinations in Wyoming, as here in Riverton. Uh, but there's you know Sheridan, Buffalo, lots of the, I don't know any place in the state where you, you don't have easy access to wonderful hunting. And in our game department, you know, I I did hunt all fifty states for deer. And when I was with Outdoor Life, I used to do the deer big game forecast. And I used to work with a lot of state agencies. And maybe I'm biased, but I think this game and fish department is by by far the best because um, they're very hunter-friendly. Heck, you can even call them up and, or go on their page and say, I've got an antelope tag for a certain unit. Are there any landowners that want antelope taken? And they'll give you a list of people to call. Um, but they're very, I think, responsive to the public at meetings in most cases. Um, Access Yes program in Wyoming is fantastic. You know, the walk-in areas, you can go, well, around where I live, you can go out east of Cody around uh, Basin and Lovell and Powell and Otto, and there's thousands and thousands of acres open to public hunting on ranches and farms. It's just it's I can't say enough about this state. It's just fantastic. We've got an elk unit around Cody that I probably shouldn't tell you this, but you know about it. That 66 is open for five months. It opens August 15th and it closes on January 15th. And you could take a cow, bull, calf, whatever you want for the first two months. But uh, for example, you know, and of course here we can actually take three elk, a, a bull and two cows, um, by knowing how to apply and in fact there's places where you can buy cow tags across the counter yeah so that was one of my you know aha moments when i moved from another western state to here Mm -hmm. was you know you go to any new county first thing you do is go look at those walking areas oh yeah and start there and then start you know trying to navigate how how to hunt but it it really it it's just light years ahead of with that access yes program of giving giving somebody who's new to an area at least a place to start. And speaking of access, yes, you know, when you buy your license in Wyoming, as you know, you can check off a box for access, yes, or search and rescue, which are both great organizations. So I usually check off access, yes, because I hunt those properties. And several years ago, because I use a property, I figured, you know, I, I ought to pay for, for some of that somehow, make a donation. So I checked off access, yes, and I, Put fifty bucks in now. Fifty bucks is what you'd spend on, on a, a box of shells if you're shooting tank, a letter. Take a guess. Yeah, I got a letter from the director who I didn't know from Cheyenne. The director gave me a fish, handwritten thank you letter. Said thank you very much for your generosity for fifty dollars. You are one of the top ten contributors in Wyoming, and wow. I thought, oh, that was really disappointing. Fifty bucks. I was one of the top ten in Wyoming. So wow. I think a lot of people, when they buy their licenses, they just don't appreciate what the Game and Fish Department is is uh, providing for us there. So I, I firmly believe in supporting it if you're going to use it. Well, and if you're an angler, 
there's a lot of places like on the Encampment River and different oh. places around the state you can't get to without that program. That's right. There's no way you're getting onto that body of water to fish it yep. because of the way the rules are set up. So, yeah, I agree with you. Whether you're a hunter or an angler, yep. you should be thinking about and it. We've also got the hunter management units where the game department makes a deal with the ranchers. And you all you do is you go to the – you can do it online. You get a piece of paper. You put your driver's – or your uh, license plate number on it. You put it on your dash. It's free. You can hunt that ranch all day long, whatever you want. And so there's there's lots of great – plus the public land here, I think there's something like 15 million acres of BLM land in Wyoming and maybe 8 or 10 million of Forest Service. So access is, is definitely not a problem. Yeah, this state is unique in the fact that if you're a public lands guy, mm-hmm. you, you can oh, yeah. go just about anywhere and kill just about anything, David. Sure. I mean, he knows that. He does that every year. Yep. But I'm, I'm starting to see you know an influx of garbage an influx of people who aren't respecting either either the the walk-in areas or our public lands they just and you know again it's it's a privilege to have access to all this and it sure is and we we need to take care of it yeah i think that's an important message too to anglers that one of the big things i run into nowadays and i was talking to kevin at rocky mountain about this is that you go down to say a high traffic area like boyson reservoir dam and you fish the river down below and you've got Gatorade bottles and beer cans and worm containers and fishing, fishing lines strung everywhere. And what I'm trying to teach my kids and what I think for the future of this, if we, again, this is, this goes back to the future of the sport. Mm-hmm. If we want to have access to keep doing these things, we have to be responsible. We have to take our garbage bag. We have to pick up after ourselves. And I, I really hope people take it seriously because you know, a couple bad apples spoil the whole yep. the whole batch. For and sure. Having gone all the way through the scouting program and getting my Eagle Scout, you know, we, it was ingrained and instilled in me very young to to pack it in, pack it out, leave mm-hmm. your cl- camp cleaner than you found it, and and all these things that you know are, are very important. But the general public who you know just casually engages in these activities sure. didn't get ingrained and instilled in them, and we need to. I mean, I, I don't want to be rude, but we, we need to start calling some of these people out that are throwing the beer can out sure. and be like, hey, man, yep. take that with you. Yep. Yeah. And also, you know, it's a good idea. There's a, a lake right next to the highway in, in Cody, Beck Lake, near the mm-hmm. airport. And there's garbage all over the place. I, I don't know that it's, most of us from fishermen, but just cars passing by. And last year I took a garbage bag out there and picked up a bunch of stuff and and just felt good about it, you know. Yes. So... Yeah, we did a project three years ago down below the dam on Boyson with some students from up here at Central Wyoming College. Mm-hmm. We filled up four <clears throat> four big um, trash bags, leaf bags, with trash. And it was everything from, uh, you know, some of the guys will get pallets and they'll, they'll burn them next to the shoreline, you know, mm-hmm. to, to stay mm-hmm. warm. Well, then all those nails are everywhere. So we yeah. picked up a whole bunch of nails. And we picked oh. up hooks, line... Uh, lots of bottles, you know, I think that's probably the biggest thing I find is like plastic bottles everywhere, mm-hmm. but the fishing line, I bet you we picked up, I don't know, it's probably a basketball sized wad of fishing line. Right? Yeah. It's just unbelievable, you yeah. know, and I, I, I was trying to convey to those college kids, I was like, this is why <clears throat> it's so important to get this stuff cleaned up because it, it just accumulates really fast. Yep. It only takes a couple that's people right. and it just goes. Sure. No, but that's, you know, back to the scouting. I, I, For my Eagle project, we had to, 
you know, do a big donation of time and money and, and every Eagle Scout project has to. But even before that, my dad got me involved with the uh, Northwest Steelhead. Mm-hmm. You know, in that organization on weekends, we'd go out and set fish traps to for the biologist or check them or we'd go do a line cleanup or we'd go, you know, a couple of times we helped establish a new fishing access park and boat ramp and got the funding and paid for that. So when you get involved in, in some of that, and, you know, now I've seen, you know, I really like these veterans organizations that are coming out that mm-hmm. are getting vets back into the sport. Yep, I mean, and I know you're involved with that, so I want to hear a little bit about that. Well, I've been involved with a number of vet organizations, um, but right now the one I'm working with mostly is called Hunting with Heroes. It's based in Wyoming. It's based in Casper. There are eight chapters in the state, and uh, we have a real unique program in Wyoming where you can donate a license to Hunting with Heroes or Wyoming Disabled Hunters, which is headquartered in Cody. And in other words, you could, as a resident, you can buy an elk tag or a deer tag and donate it to the foundation, and they will give it to a disabled veteran. I think he's got to be 50% disabled. I'm not sure. Um, maybe it's more than that. And they bring those veterans in. Bring the they veterans give them a in. tag. Uh, so far, the organization is only six years old, have, have uh, sponsored 1,000 hunts, most of them being antelope. And the guide's time is donated. I mean, and we've had a couple of banquets here, and yeah. I've attended them, and it's a right. great organization. Yep. You've got a chapter here, don't you? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Um, this past year, we took a guy out. He's a Vietnam veteran. He had Agent Orange, stage four cancer, and he's beat everything so far. God bless him. But we took him on an elk hunt down on the Bridger Coal Company near Rock Springs on those strip mines. And they let one person a year hunt, and it's a veteran. So we took this guy out there, and then they got a donated tag. It's, it's, I think it's the Red Desert Herd, which is really tough to draw. It might be Unit 100. Yep, it's 100. Uh, yeah. But at any rate, someone had a tag. They gave him the tag, and someone gave an antelope tag, and he had an elk and an antelope down by noon. The guy was <laughs> thrilled. That's awesome. He came all the way from Virginia, and he said, boy, just the knowledge of going on that hunt made all the difference in his attitude toward life because he was, he was pretty depressed with all that. And, so, I mean, Wyoming has a unique situation where we can offer, you know, that at a very high level. Yeah. But I would challenge anybody out there listening in any state, you don't, you know, Wyoming doesn't have to carry this sure. movement, you know. Right. Start a movement in your own state where yeah. you, you do something either for kids or for veterans <laughs> or for you know, I know these women's activities are getting to be very big. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, the, I mean, even on the fishing side, there's a lot of these trips for disabled vets for fishing where they're taking them out and they're catching trout or bluegill. It doesn't matter, yep. but just getting them out there to do something. And I was reading an article last night. There was a guy, he was, same thing, stage four cancer veteran, and his dream was to catch a nice sized bluegill and he was on this body of water and he caught this really nice bluegill and you could Mm. see the tears streaming down his face, you know, it just meant the world to him. And, you know, I, I think that that's where a lot of things get lost anymore is Mm. that the outdoors, you can have an incredible experience that is just life altering. It is. It's true. We need to have more of those moments. Yeah. I took a, I took a, a Marine hunting. He was a, believe it or not, a three time recipient of purple heart. And uh, took him goose hunting in Virginia. It was the first hunt he'd ever been on. And it was a beautiful day for goose hunting. The snow was lightly falling. Geese were flying, coming to our decoys. And um, 
we got our limits and we got out of our layout blinds and we're getting ready to go. And he said, Hey, I want to tell you guys something. And he said, come here. So we walked over there and he says, he says, ever since I came back from, from Iraq, he said, uh, people have been really kind to me. I went to a Super Bowl. They gave me a ticket. I've been to NASCAR races. I've been skiing. He says, but nothing compares to what I experienced this morning. Um, because, and I've, I've been involved with several veteran groups and, all those folks tell me that hunting is empowering. It's almost spiritual. You out there, you see the new morning born. You know, you're, you, it's just different than sitting around a room in some veterans' hospital and commiserating and you're anticipating what morning. the next moment yeah, might bring. And what they really like for years, we did a, a Purple Heart hunt out of Douglas, Wyoming. We take five guys every year, and almost all of them were double leg amputees. They get hit with IEDs um, or a single leg. And they'd sit around a campfire and they talk among themselves. And they can share stories, but whether they're battles or combat stories, they would talk about their injuries. And it was incredible therapy and rehab for those folks. So, you know, and that is just a, a great way to give back because the suicide rate among military, I just heard on the radio this morning, it's growing. I think it was like 24 a day and now it's even more. But, uh, but there's no question in my mind that hunting and fishing, there's a group called Healing Waters. I think it's out of Virginia or D.C. It's a big foundation now. They take these, these folks, uh, men and women. People think that they're just men who are hurt in that. I've taken out a, a few gals who are actually Purple Hearts. But uh, so there's a lot of opportunity for those people, and they really deserve our support. Yep. So and I think it's good therapy for everybody just being around a campfire. Absolutely. I mean, whether you're a vet or not. I, yep. There are times, you know, when you, you just have a, a crazy week even, and you, you go home and you fire up the fire pit and you get the kids around it, and it's just there's just something about that, being out there under the stars with that fire. Yep. It's amazing. Yep, I've I've had the good fortune with my job with Outdoor Life of uh, hunting with some famous people because that was my job, you know, seek out these folks. And one of them was General Chuck Yeager, who, of course, he was the first man that break the speed of sound in 1947. And you know, the the movie The Right Stuff was written around his life, best pilot in the world. And I and I got to to hunt and fish with him many times. I actually flew in a bush plane in Alaska, a beaver that he was piloting, and that was one of the biggest thrills of my life. But we'd sit around a campfire. He didn't want to talk about flying. You know, he's he's flown like ninety five different jets as a as a test pilot in combat. He World War Two ace in one day, and he wanted to talk about hunting and fishing. That was his greatest love. And I think the reason he liked me is because I put a picture of him on Outdoor Life on the cover holding an Alaska salmon. And he loved to be <laughs> known as an outdoorsman rather than just because everybody knew he was on the cover of Time magazine as a top pilot, you know. So that was his big, but it was just fun to, and like you say, sitting around a campfire, you really learn about folks, and you know, and it's a real bonding thing as well. And with families, you know, get your kids out there, marshmallows, hot dogs, and just no electronics. You know, <laughs> and you don't got to go, you know, for 10 days. I Sometimes we, we've got a little, a little lake. It's called Morton. It's 10 minutes from our house. Mm -hmm. We'll load up and go and have mm -hmm. a campfire and, yeah. you know, we'll take fishing poles and, and sure. marshmallow sticks. Yep. That's all you need. Yep. Yeah. We do that same thing on Wind River Canyon, right at the mouth of the canyon. They have the state park there. Mm -hmm. We'll pull the camper in there, set up on the fire pit and just enjoy each other. Listen to the river. Of course you get a little traffic noise too, but you know, when it gets down in, pitch black mm -hmm. 
and you've got that Milky Way galaxy that you can see really clearly up above you. It's it's just there's nothing you like it. Show them the Big Dipper. Yeah, you know, and then just uh, yeah, it's fabulous. It really is. There's nothing like the outdoors. I, my whole life has been outdoor oriented. In fact, my dad used to tell his buddies, my kid never worked a day in his life. He's always out there hunting and fishing, which was almost true. <laughs> which <laughs> almost is okay. True. Although when you're a writer, a lot of folks don't appreciate the hours you spend from midnight to 3 a.m. or whatever trying to satisfy some editor in New York City and, and make sure it's it's good every time. So there's a lot of pressure on that, really is. So, Yeah, you've had an incredible experience and been able to see a lot of cool things and do a lot of cool things so no, i'm a pretty blessed guy and i you know it's, it's a it's a good ride and and uh right now i'm basically retired i write the back page for peterson's hunting magazine and i'm starting to write for outdoor life again for their uh inline magazine so i keep at it here and there yeah well thank you again we're very grateful that you came well, on the show with pleasure us. Pleasure to come down here to Riverton. Always yeah. love this town. Got some good friends here. Maybe stop by and see the folks at High Mountain. And say yeah, hello. I think we'll head over there as soon as we're done. So, well, thanks a lot for the invite. It's been fun. Thank you so much, thanks, Jim. Jim. And now it's time for the Radcast Outdoors Recipe of the Week, made possible by High Mountain Seasonings, a Riverton business. Check out their latest seasonings at highmountainjerky.com. That's H-I-M-T-N jerky.com, H-I-M-T-N jerky.com, and use promo code HMS10, that's hms 10 for 10% off your next order, High Mountain Seasonings. For this recipe of the week, I'm really excited to share my backstrap extravaganza. As everyone knows, I like to go out and procure a lot of protein. And my f- absolute total favorite way to cook backstrap, you can either butterf- butterfly, which you just take you know, an inch thick slice of meat, you cut it almost three quarters of the way through so it lays out in a butterfly. I then take a small dollop of cream cheese, one jalapeno, wrap it closed with bacon, you know, usually in a hot dog shape with a couple toothpicks, sprinkle some high mountain seasoning on the outside, and barbecue that till the cream cheese starts to ooze out the middle. It is just absolutely to die for. Radcast Outdoors is hosted by David Merrill and Patrick Edwards. It's recorded and produced in the Porter's 10Cast Studios, located in the County10.com offices in Riverton, Wyoming. The show is made possible by Maven Optics, Rocky Mountain Discount Sports, High Mountain Seasoning, and Bow Spider. For more details on the show, follow 10Cast on Facebook, follow Radcast Outdoors on Facebook, and if you don't mind, please subscribe, rate, and review this show on your favorite podcast app david and patrick will be back next week with more radcast outdoors